Well, the poem this morning is from Emily Dickinson. I heard a fly buzz when I died. The stillness in the room was like the stillness in the air between the heaves of storm. The eyes around had wrung them dry and breaths were gathered firm for that last onset when the king be witnessed in the room. I willed my keepsakes, signed away what portions of me be assignable. And then it was, there interposed a fly with blue, uncertain, stumbling buzz between the light and me. And then the windows failed. And then I could not see to see. I heard a fly buzz when I died. The stillness in the room was like the stillness in the air between the heaves of storm. The eyes around had wrung them dry and breaths were gathered. Breaths were gathering firm for that last onset when the king be witnessed in the room. I willed my keepsakes, signed away what portions of me be assignable, and then it was. There interposed a fly with blue, uncertain, stumbling buzz between the light and me. And then the windows failed. And then I could not see to see. Maybe you uh, notice the strangeness of that last line. And then I could not see to see. Why not just, I could not see? What does it mean, I could not see to see? Then doesn't it remind you a little bit of my Shurangama Sutra poem, which is about seeing not seeing or seeing seeing? Emily Dickinson is a very strange poet. It took uh, almost 100 years <coughs> for people to realize how strange she was. Now we know. But for the first 100 years or so, they were correcting her mistakes and cleaning her up. <coughs> we didn't know how strange she, she was. I really think she understood continuous practice really well because she paid very close attention to her own experience and was very intimate with her own experience. And she did not allow herself to be closed down by the tightness 
of the society that was all around her, including in her own house. Lee uh, reminded me of that poem. And then the poem reminded me that just this last year, we lost uh, Leila Bockhorst, who was a dear old, old friend of ours from uh, Zen Center days long ago. And a priest, one of the first priests, priests uh, to whom I gave Dharma transmission uh, long, long ago. She was a truly beautiful, quiet human being. And I think of her today because I can't think of anybody that I know who was more true to continuous practice all her life. And she was so inspiring and so graceful in her dying. She, she took care, care of everyone all around her up until the last moment. And just as Emily Dickinson writes, <clears throat> the king was witnessed in the room when she passed. That great, perfect silence thick in the air that occupies the space at that moment when life is mysteriously transformed by what we call death. And how sad and joyful was her cremation ceremony when a few of us old-time Zen comrades went there to see her off chanting and wheeling her body into the big, loud, burning machine. It says on the Han that we whack before coming back to the Zendo after a break. Life and death is the great matter. I was marveling today at how strange and wonderful it is that this continuous practice that Dogen writes about, that is done as he describes it so inspiringly by the great determined monastics of the past, that somehow this same practice can be done by us who are living in such different times and in such different ways. And maybe it even seems impossible. There are some who would probably say it is impossible that we, living our worldly lives in compl complicated, materialistic ways, could do the practice that they did. To be sure, we respect these ancient examples and we feel an awesome regard for what they did and feel pretty humble about what little we are able to do. 
But at the same time, we know we are doing the same practice in the same spirit. And just as they awakened, we too awaken. As Dogen says in Ehe Katsuganman, the ancients of the past were once like us, and we too will be one day like them. And our lives really do transform. Our way of life and our view of life really does become completely different as we do continuous practice. It is quite ordinary, and yet at the same time it is truly extraordinary. It doesn't seem possible that we could emulate our great ancestors who gave up everything to do continuous practice. Yet somehow, probably thanks to them, we can do it, and we do do it. Lest we think that one has to be a monastic (coughs) to do continuous practice, (coughs) excuse me, Dogen, in this fascicle, does give us an example of a lay person who did it. And the person happens to be an emperor, (laughs) Emperor Xuan. Dogen tells his story. When Xuan was uh, a boy, his elder brother became the emperor. And one time, uh, Xuan was... uh, playing, you know, he was like maybe 12 or 13, and he was playing, and he climbed up on the emperor's throne and pretended that he was the emperor, and all the courtiers, you know, were like really upset because this is a completely taboo, of course. But uh, his, his elder brother, the emperor, came in and patted him on the head and said, oh, wonderful that you share this family destiny. And Xuan, as, even as a boy, had a feeling for uh, continuous practice and did zazen in the palace in the mornings. After a while, the emperor passed away, and he had three sons, each of whom became the emperor in turn. The first one died young, the second one was deposed, and the third one, as it happens, was Emperor Wu, who was responsible for the great persecution of Buddhism, very famous in Chinese history in in 846, that Tim mentioned the other day, that impacted, closed all the monasteries, and sent uh, Guishan off to earn a living, honestly. Uh, as an aside, uh, let me just mention, this is a kind of like a footnote here. You know, we think that our American history is like dramatic and drastic now. And, and, and I suppose it is compared to what it has been, perhaps. But it is very tame compared to some of the things that have happened in Chinese history, which includes vast persecutions and purges and huge famines 
and peasant rebellions in which millions of people perished. I think last year or so, Kathy got into doing some research about the Anlushan Rebellion, which is very famous in Chinese history. And historians believe that um, that, that rebellion lasted eight years. And historians estimate that there were about 36 million deaths. 36 million deaths, which was about a third of the population of China at that time. And that happened right in the middle of the Tang Dynasty, right in the middle of the period when Zen was being established. And although, as far as I'm aware, and I'm aware of this much, you know, of Zen literature, so much of it not being even translated, but as far as I'm aware, our Zen ancestors did not refer to the Anlushan Rebellion directly, but they were certainly aware of it. And they certainly saw the necessity to develop continuous practice in the light of the catastrophe that surrounded them wherever they looked. Just as we today see our practice as a necessary response to the challenges of our time. Believe me, in addition to all the things we need to fix our world, one of the things we need is continuous practice. In the 20th century, when Mao Zedong shut down intellectual life pretty much completely in China and forced all the intellectuals to undergo re-education, as he called it. And then before that, when he instituted forced collective farming and millions and millions of people died of famine, he was fully confident that he was simply engaging in the forms of drastic social reorganization that had always happened under the hands of the emperors, various emperors throughout Chinese history. This is something we have no, thank God, you know, no experience of. Anyway, back to our story. So now Emperor Wu is the emperor, and Xuan is his not so much older than him, but his uncle. So Emperor Wu summons Xuan to the palace and says to him, when you were a boy, you climbed up on the throne. That is not okay. Now you must be punished. So he had him beaten to an inch of his life and then dunked, marinated in a vat of urine. But he didn't kill him. And when Xuan recovered from his wounds, he slipped away into exile in the deep mountains where he began his practice of the way in earnest. There's a story that Dogen tells about a time when he was in a monastery practicing closely with Huangbo. Once Huangbo went to the Buddha hall and made prostrations to the Buddha, and Chuan, who was his secretary at the time, joined in and said to him, Seek without being attached to the Buddha. Seek without being attached to the Dharma. 
Seek without being attached to the Sangha. Dear Elder, why are you making prostrations? And Huangbo gave him a whack and said, Seek without being attached to the Buddha. Seek without being attached to the Dharma. Seek without being attached to the Sangha. Therefore, we make prostrations. And then he slapped him again. <laughs> Sean said, that's pretty rough. And Huangbo said, there's nothing rough or smooth. It's always just the way it is. It can't be any other way. And for good measure, he slapped him a third time. <laughs> And Shuan was silent. Of course, Wu's reign ended, as do the reigns of all tyrants. And Shuan returned to the capital and ascended the throne and became the emperor. And immediately stopped the persecution of Buddha, Buddhism, reinstated the monasteries, and Dogen says, the whole time he was emperor, he remained devoted to daily zazen. And Dogen here cites him as an example of a lay person who endured great suffering, trauma, and exile. And yet, while living a busy lay life full of responsibilities, was a beacon of continuous practice. In continuous practice, Dogen also tells the story of Bodhidharma's extremely determined disciple, Hoika. I'm sure most of you know the story of Hoika, who, wanting to study with Bodhidharma, waited for him outside in the snow. And eventually, as the story goes, cut off his own, own arm to demonstrate his determination. And Dogen brings up this story, I think, to make the further point that continuous practice is not just something you do. It is something that you share and communicate. To do continuous practice is to do continuous practice together with others and to pass it on to future generations, just as it has been passed on to you. And he writes this. He says, if Bodhidharma had come from India thousands of times, we would not have continuous practice today were it not for Hueka. So we should express our gratitude to Hueka. How do we do that? Not easy to express gratitude. Most ways of expressing gratitude miss the mark. Give up your whole body, doesn't do it. Give a lot of stuff, doesn't do it. How do you do it? Continuous practice is the only way to express 
our gratitude. He goes on. This means that you do continuous practice unselfishly without wasting a single day of your life. Why would you, why would you do that? Your life is a fortunate outcome of the continuous practice from the past. That's why we're born, because of the continuous practice of the past and all the biological and scientific information we have just explains the mechanism by which the continuous practice of the past works to produce a new life. You should express your gratitude immediately with every moment of continuous practice. So Bodhidharma and Hueka are the first and second ancestors in China, the 28th and 29th ancestors from Buddhist time in India, because uh, Dogen doesn't think, and I don't think we think, that Zen was invented at some point. It was, it's, it's the same practice that the Buddha did. Dogen also brings up the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth ancestors, and says pointedly that none of them built their own monasteries. All of them devoted themselves exclusively to continuous practice. Now we know for sure uh, that uh, from histories that the fifth and the sixth Zen ancestors definitely did head up large monasteries, but Dogen seems to be implying that they did this without intending to do it and without getting enmeshed in worldly affairs of fame and gain, relying exclusively, as I said, on continuous practice. So this avoiding fame and gain is a really important theme also of continuous practice, which I don't think we've brought up to now. And Dogen mentions this in relation to several of the examples he brings up, including his own teacher, Rujing. But here he, he cites uh, the fourth ancestors, fourth ancestor, Daoshen, and he tells the following story about Daoshen. He says, uh, in the 16th year of the Zengguan era, which we would call the year 642, Emperor Tai, in admiration of Daoshen's flavor of the way, invited him to the capital wishing to test the hue of his dharma. Daoshen respectfully declined three times, claiming ill health. At the fourth summons, the emperor ordered the messenger to cut off Daoshen's head if he declined again. The messenger saw Daoshen and relayed this imperial order to him, and with complete composure, Dao Xin stretched out his neck, getting ready for the sword, which impressed the messenger a lot, and he didn't cut off his head. But he went back to the emperor and, and reported this, and the emperor admired Dao Xin even more and stopped inviting him <laughs> and sent him some nice silk instead. So what Dogen is telling us that it's better to have your head cut off than to 
go down the path of fame and gain. I'm sure that none of us here are doing whatever we do for fame and gain. But maybe we shouldn't be too sure about that. To be concerned that others think well of us and to do things for that reason. To be concerned with maximizing our reputation and our money and trying to get more of it all the time. Even, even thinking that by doing continuous practice, we will gain calmness, mental health, and the respect of others. All these things might be examples of seeking fame and gain. It's funny, you know, but in our time, seeking fame and gain has become almost a kind of cartoon. You have to do that. Everybody has to seek fame and gain. It's a basic skill for living in our era. We must learn how to seek fame and gain if we want to do okay, you know, to survive in the world. Everybody has to market themselves. I have a poet friend who said, uh, it's going to say on my epitaph, she was lousy at marketing herself. <laughs> on, my, on my gravestone, you know. She failed to market herself. Because <laughs> you have to. I was so impressed and dismayed, you know, when our son Noah went to art school to get his master's degree in art at Columbia. They taught him some art, but they also taught him how to market himself as an artist, which is a very important skill. You're, you're a fool if you don't know how to market yourself as an artist. You might as well hang it up, you know. I know some uh, people who work as corporate coaches, and one of the things that they have to teach their clients is how to make sure that all their co-workers, especially their managers, are aware of all the good stuff they're doing in their job. What's a website for if not to let people know who you are and how great you are and how wonderful are the services and goods you are offering? Facebook is a way to let the world know about your new products and your latest book, about your very, very happy birthday surrounded by loving family and friends and your fabulous vacation. Sometimes it even goes down to letting people know what a wreck we are and how terrible our lives are so that we can feel heard and appreciated and known and possibly build an audience for our memoir. <laughs> About all this. It's come to that. And I found this passage in Nietzsche, Nietzsche about this. And it's amazing that he writes this. This is like he's writing this at the end of the 19th century, right? You wouldn't think. But listen to this. This could be written yesterday. He says, uh, and, and of course, he's always so, so funny, Nietzsche. Formally, he says, one wished to acquire, formally, one wished to acquire fame and to be spoken of. Now, this is no longer enough because the market has grown too large. 
And nothing less than screaming will do. <laughs> He's writing this in like, whatever it is, 1880 or something. As a consequence, even good voices scream till they are hoarse. And the best goods are offered by cracked voices. Without the screaming of those who want to sell, and without the hoarseness, there is no longer any genius. This is surely an evil age for the thinker. And, and by thinker, he means you know, the person who's seeking truth, who really wants to understand and you know, live an authentic life. This is an evil age for such a person who has to learn how to find her silence between two noises and to pretend to be deaf until she really becomes deaf until she has learned this, to be sure, she runs the risk of perishing of impatience and headaches. It seems odd that he mentions headaches, but, but in, in actual fact, among his many ailments, Nietzsche su suffered from bad headaches, painful migraine headaches. So, this is the way it is, and uh, continuous practice is pretty much the opposite. Pretty much the opposite. To do something for its own sake, with full commitment, full concentration, rather than presenting what we are doing to others, or even to ourselves, as a mark of who we are, is the virtue and the mark of continuous practice. And to live in this way is very, very calming. And it's a very happy way to live. Just to appreciate what you're doing, no matter what it is, whether you like it or not, without needing to be sure that what you are doing is good or right or correct or somehow measures up to some imaginary and arbitrary standard that others will congratulate you for. It's a beautiful way to live. Dogen has another story about Daoshen that is rather amazing, at least to me it isn't rather amazing. So now it's 651, some years later. Daoshen gives instructions to his students. He says, all things are liberated. Guard your mind and teach future generations. After he said that, he sat at ease on his cushion and died. He was 72 years old. And they built a stupa for him on the mountain. The following year, suddenly, the door to the stupa blew open, and inside was sitting Daoshen 
looking pretty much the same way he had always looked. And after that, they never closed the door of the stupa again. Dogen uh, comments on this story. Listen to Daoshan's words. All things are liberated. It is not merely that all things are empty or that all things are all things, but that all things are liberated. Daoshan had continuous practice before entering the stupa and he had continuous practice after entering the stupa. And to assume that all living beings die is a narrow view. To assume that the dead do not perceive is a limited idea. Do not follow these views when you study the way. There may be those who go beyond death. There may be dead people who perceive. So this week we've been wondering a little bit about death and what is death and is there such a thing and so on and so on. For sure, uh, that we die or believe that we die is such an important thing to us. Really, I think everything in our lives constantly is in reference to that, whether we know it or not. That's why there is religion, because humans are the only creatures who die and have the idea that they die. Here's another little couple of sentences from Nietzsche. For the longest time, conscious thought was considered thought itself. Only now does the truth dawn on us that by far the greatest part of our spirit's activity remains unconscious and unfelt. And we all know this, right? We all know there's an unconscious. And that's why they call it the unconscious, because we're not conscious of it, right? (laughs) So we all know this. And yet, isn't it true that we all think that we, we meaning our conscious mind, our will, our skillfulness, our diligence, our effort, don't we all think that we are responsible for our lives and our spiritual practice? Don't we think we, conscious mind, us, are doing this. But it's really true that the greater part of who and what we are remains unknown to us. We have to trust that. Dogen says, to assume anything about death and those who die is a limited view. Don't take that view for granted. Continuous practice is for life as well as for death. Life itself is for life as well as for death. When we do continuous practice, just giving ourselves to our sitting and our human activity, always, 
without any thought of fame or gain. We enter life beyond birth and death. And that life is identical to the life of the great ancestors that Dogen is writing about. It's a kind of floating eternity circulating round and round the eternity of impermanence that pervades each moment of our lives. Since uh, I seem to be having a little fun by giving myself full permission to indulge my uh, Nietzsche <laughs> today, here's, here's something else. <laughs> Now, one of Nietzsche's most wacky and famous ideas is the idea of eternal return. Now, Nietzsche considered himself actually to be a rationalist and like a scientific investigator. He was investigating his own life he felt like rigorously and scientifically, and he was not being, he threw off all sort of conventionality and all any moral strictures he thought, he didn't want to limit himself. He wanted to be a scientific investigator, you know, not pushed around by custom. So he figured that since it is scientifically true that nothing ever disappears, but only recombines, and that it is very likely that time has an infinite and nonlinear characteristic. Then he considered that it was a scientific certainty that everything that had ever happened was bound to happen again, and again, and again. This was mathematically certain, he felt. Which meant that everything we do, we should be willing to do forever. Because we will do it again and again and again as we repeat our lives again and again and again. So this is not the first time we've gone through this. And not the last time. Every moment comes again forever in an endless succession. Nietzsche never, you know, explained this theory cogently, but then again, he was not that kind of a writer. He was sort of, he wrote aphoristically. So he never really explained this, but he referred to it more than once. And the idea both inspired him and delighted him and absolutely terrified him. Think about it, right? <laughs> what a wonderful idea. What a terrifying idea. In many ways, it is not that different from Dogen's teaching about continuous practice, is it? Minus the extra dose of terror and attitude that Nietzsche adds to it. But here's a passage about eternal return in the gay science. He says, uh, what if someday or night 
a demon were to steal after you into your loneliest loneliness and say to you the following, this life as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times more. And there will be nothing new in it, but every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh and everything unutterably small or great in your life will have to return to you, all in exactly the same succession and sequence. Even this spider and this moonlight between the trees and even this moment when I, myself, the demon, am speaking to you, will all come back. The eternal hourglass of existence is turned upside down again and again, and you with it, you speck of dust. That's what the demon says to you. And then Nietzsche goes on. Now, would you th not, hearing this, throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon who spoke this? Or have you just once experienced a moment in which you would have answered him, thank you. I have never heard anything more divine than this. And if such a thought were to gain possession of you, it would change you forever if such a moment arose. The question in each and every activity, do you desire this once more and innumerable times more, would lie upon all your actions as the greatest weight. If you knew how important everything you did was, it would be quite a bit of pressure, you know? Even though it really is true. On the other hand, Nietzsche says, how well disposed would you have to become to yourself and to life to crave nothing more fervently than this ultimate, eternal confirmation and seal. Quite a guy that Nietzsche, right? Who would, who would think of such things? Dogen, probably. <laughs> Emily Dickinson, probably. So continuous practice is what we do to ensure that we will become so well disposed to ourselves that we will want nothing more than this confirmation and seal, which comes from our very own body, mind, and breath, and from the goodness and the power of each moment of our lives that we are sharing intimately with one another 
and all of our ancestors from the past, as well as all of our descendants into the boundless and endless future. The stillness in the room was like the stillness in the air between the heaves of storm. The eyes all round had wrung them dry and breaths were gathering firm for that last onset when the king he witnessed in the room. By my uh, calculation, uh, today appears to be the last day, correct, of our uh, endless, <laughs> beginningless, eternal session. We have always been here. We have been here over and over and over and over and over again. And by tomorrow evening, it will be as if we have never been here, mm -hmm. ever. As is always the case, it has been marvelous for me to be here with you. Some people ask me, isn't it a burden, all these people coming and everybody's suffering and how do you sit there all the time? No, it's not a burden. Whatever anybody's going through, they have always gone through it and they always will. <laughs> and I'm not doing anything, but just bearing witness to the beauty of it all. And I, and I as always, I have been moved by your practice, every single one of you. Those of you whose lives are changing, those of you who are absolutely convinced your lives never will change, <laughs> all of it is beautiful. You are all, to me, seriously, amazing Buddhas. I can't get over it. So I will close uh, our series of talks with a few lines that everybody here knows. They, they've been running through my head uh, for days now because I was thinking, all we need to do is sing these few lines because everything we've been saying, both of us, Tim and I have been saying all week, pretty much come down to these lines. So I will start by singing them, but I'm not a good singer. And so uh, I hope you will join me. <clears throat> Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. All your life, you were only waiting for this moment to arise. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these sunken eyes and learn to see. 
all your life. You were only waiting for this moment to arise. Blackbird, fly. Blackbird, fly. Into the light of the dark black night. Once more. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly all your life. You were only waiting for this moment to arise. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these sunken eyes and learn to see all your life. You were only waiting for this moment to be free. Blackbird fly, blackbird fly, into the light of the dark black. So pretty soon we'll all fly away home. Wonderful. Thank you. May our intentions equally extend.